so that God can teach you something in that whole thing. So I'm looking forward to this being over with this morning so maybe God can finish teaching me that lesson this week. Um, but it is a great passage of Scripture that we're going to get to. You can open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 22 in a minute. But as we do... Um, I look at this, and and whenever we get to a passage of Scripture like this one, I will tell you right now it has direct instruction of how we're to live, which is always nice, because it's not, you know, something you're going to have to really spend a long time trying to figure out what is being said here. It's pretty direct. And and also, the, the things that are taught in this passage of Scripture this morning were also modeled very nicely by Jesus Christ in his life here on earth. And finally, whenever I can tie anything to an episode of the Andy Griffith Show, it works very well for me. So that's where I want to begin this morning. Um, oh, and I, I was going to say this too. This last Wednesday night, I had a chance to speak to some of the guys at Awana. And uh, again, as I was wrestling with what to talk about and you know how direct to be, one of the verses right in the middle of that passage of Scripture is Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, where Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. So I've been trying to listen very closely to God this week, but I just can't get off of Andy Griffith. So we're going to start there anyway. Okay? So, one of the Christmas episodes of the Andy Griffith show, back in black and white when it was good, because once things turned color, it all fell apart for me, Auntie, I'm just saying. Um, mean old Ben Weaver, who owns Weaver's Department Store, catches... One of his employees, Sam Muggins, moonshining and insists that even though it's Christmas Eve, that Sheriff Andy Taylor arrest Sam and throw him in jail. Now, in order to keep Ben off his back, because Ben's a rich and powerful member of the community, Andy goes ahead and he arrests Sam Muggins, and he goes ahead and arrests his children and his wife as well, saying that they were accessories before, during, and after the fact, because they knew that Sam was making moonshine in the barn. So they're all together in jail, and so by doing that, Andy can still have the Christmas party that he and his family had planned. So he deputizes Ellie, his girlfriend, and Opie, his son, and Aunt B, his whatever she was, and brings them all into the jail to, to help watch this vicious group of prisoners over the Christmas holiday. And uh, it winds up that they have a great big party. But looking in from the outside through the whole episode is this mean old crotchety storekeeper, um, Ben Weaver. And as the story goes on, we see this contrast in these two characters. First, there's, there's Ben, who's full of malice and envy. He's slanderous. He's deceitful. To one point, um, Andy even says to his deputy, Barney, he says, you know, when Ben's time comes, Barney, he's not going to go like the rest of us. He's just going to nasty away. So we get this picture of this character over here. And then on the other side, we have this picture of this character, Sam. And Sam is... Um, although clearly guilty of a crime, he is tender-hearted. He's loving to his family. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's all those attributes, you know, that we want to have. And it's a pretty good contrast in in how we are supposed to live, and and how sometimes we, we don't with these, these two men. The end of the story is that, that Sam winds up getting himself arrested as well 
or uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Ben gets himself arrested as well so he can spend time in the jail with everybody else and turns into a great big Christmas party by the end with Barney Fife as Santa Claus. Skinniest Santa Claus ever in the history of the world. Okay. That's good. We can't dwell in Mayberry all day, although I wish we could, but we're going to move on now to the passage of Scripture for the morning with that as our backdrop. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 3. And it says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it they may, uh, you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like I said, this passage of Scripture has um, some challenging things for us. It's got some do's, it's got some don'ts, and it's got some other pieces mixed in as, as well. And I think there's some pretty clear instruction on how we're to live in this passage. Let's start with the, the do's first. Let's look at chap, uh, verse 22 there of chapter 1. And it says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You know, this is the, the Christmas season, the season of love and joy where we're supposed to love everyone. And, and you know, you see it all over TV, you hear it in songs and all that stuff, and it's not always easy to do. Um, especially when we take a look at ourselves and say those people that God has allowed into our lives that are around us, that we find not the easiest to love. We're supposed to love them anyway. And, and not only are we supposed to love them, but it says we're supposed to be sincere and earnest and from a pure heart. Now, I've said for a long time, I can do just about anything for about 20 minutes, including love someone who I don't really love, but that's not really sincere. And this passage clearly says that we're supposed to sincerely love the people that God has placed around us. What does that mean? It means that it's, it really is how we feel. It's not just a put on. It's not just a show. It's not just, you know, something that we're doing so that other people recognize something good in us, but it really is how we feel. We're supposed to do it earnestly. That's with, with some passion behind it, with some compassion behind it, if that's what it needs. We're supposed to, you know, kind of attack this love that we have for other people. And it says we're to do it from a pure heart. Because if our motives aren't right in how we love people, it's not going to come across as sincere in the first place. So there's this little, this list of these, these things that we're supposed to do. It says that we're supposed to be pure in this. It says we're supposed to be obedient to this. But Many times, it's hard for us to do. We can't always love people the way, this way because that's who we are deep inside. You know, Skeet has a, a 
phrase that he's used several times when, when he's preached, and it says, uh, he said, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. I got some of this and I got some. Let me say it again. <laughs> we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. Who we are deep inside is not this person that's being described here that just loves everybody, that's sincere and earnest and all that, that that deep down inside, you know what, we're sinful people. Some there's Everybody on staff except for me and Steve have new babies at the house. No announcements are coming, by the way, with that. And even these little bitty babies, it doesn't take long to say, there's a sin nature all tied up in this little infant here, right? You can see anger immediately in these little buggers. We're sinful people, which makes it all the harder for us to do what this, is, this passage of Scripture is saying we're supposed to do. It's not easy, but it is right. And one of the best ways to do what is right is to start by looking at what not to do. Whenever you're training your kids, the first thing that you train kids in their lives, once they're old enough to understand, is all the no's. Right? As a matter of fact, for a lot of parents, that's a hard transition for, to go from always saying no. The kid's going at the electrical socket with the screwdriver to stick it in there. A good thing to do is say no. I was going to say they're at the basement stairs, but I'll be the only one in this room that understood that because we don't have basements here. If they're at the top of the stairs and, and the kid's about to go down the stairs and doesn't know how to go down the stairs, a good thing to holler at your child is No. So before we get into the positives, well, let's pretend like we all have no idea how to do this, and we'll start with the no's first, the things that we're we're not supposed to do, the don'ts, because Peter's pretty good about giving us a list of the don'ts, what not to do so that you can be this person that that he's asking you to do. So go to verse uh, chapter 2, look at verse 1 with me. It says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and slander. Okay, that's a pretty good list. If you can knock out that list right there, you're doing pretty well in how you're going to treat other people. So let's look at this a little bit one word at a time here. So we're to put away all malice. How many of you people used the word malice in the last week in just conversation? Okay, that's kind of what I thought too. Um, I tried. You can't do it. So, But anyway, malice means this. It means to it's, it's a desire to harm someone else. It's a deep-down desire within you to harm someone else. It's not necessarily the action, but it's the attitude behind the action. That's what malice is. So he says, first thing you got to do is you have to put away malice. You have to, to decide with the people that God has placed around you that, that you are not going to have this attitude that you will ever do anything to harm them. Hippocratic oath for doctors. First, do no harm, right? Doctor, yes. Close. Yeah, that's all, I knew that's all I was going to get from you, but that's all right. So, we do no harm. First, we start by not having the attitude where we're going to harm someone else. We make that the attitude by which we live. Second thing it says that we are to put away is all deceit. Deceit is something that is strategically false. In your life, you're going to say things to someone or about someone that turns out to be false. That's not what this is talking about. 
We have four kids at our house. Somebody's being accused of something almost all the time. And sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's just mistakenly not true, a lot of the time, I hope. But what this is talking about is is this strategically false thing that we can do or say to put down someone else. And it says we can't do that. You have to have this, this attitude that's, that's not about harm, and we have to be careful that the things that we say are not strategically false to tear someone else down. Then it goes on to say that we're to put away all hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another, and we're going to get back to that in just a second. We're to put away envy. Envy is wanting something that someone else has, and it's not just necessarily material things, but it can be relationships or a whole variety of things that we perceive in others that we wish that we had ourselves, and we become jealous and envious of that. And it says we're to put away all slander. Slander is saying something that injures another's reputation. Okay, there's some nice dictionary definitions. What's the hardest part of all that? You know, we read Isaiah chapter 40 before, and it talks about this incredible God that we have. And one of the most amazing things about God in amongst this description of his hugeness and his power that's in Isaiah chapter 40, one of the great things about it is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. There is not hypocrisy anywhere in God. And I think that, that it's one of those things that, uh, that we probably wrestle with. And of this list of things, of the, of the malice and deceit and envy and slander, hypocrisy is possibly the most damaging of all those things. When we look up and we say one thing, but we behave in a completely different way... How powerful is this? Well, if you go through and you look at the times in Scripture where Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees, and there are a number, the religious leaders of his day, many times the the tack that the Pharisees take is to try and prove that somehow Jesus is a hypocrite, that he's saying one thing with with his words and he's acting in a completely different manner, that he's preaching one thing to his disciples and that he's having them break the law on the other side. Why would the Pharisees do that? Because they know that if they can catch Jesus, if they can point out to his followers that Jesus is some kind of hypocrite, it is going to destroy his reputation, and then no one will care about what else he has to say. So that's why the, you know, the message this morning is, is really about hypocrisy. Our words need to match up with our actions. And, and he gives us these little, these little things that we should put aside to sort of dispose of in our lives that will make this easier. But we really need to make sure that who we say we are and who we live we are, that's not grammatically correct, but go with it anyway, are, are the same person. How big is this? The Pharisees accused Jesus of this numerous times. When we get to the end of the Bible, if you, turn, if you would turn to Revelation, don't go there, let me just share it with you this morning. In the book of Revelation, the angel of the Lord comes and he talks about seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And he challenges each of those churches with something. Two of the churches that he challenges really are challenged with hypocrisy. 
The first one is the church at Sardis. And at the church at Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, it says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but actually you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains in, uh, what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works, uh, I'm sorry, I have not found your works complete in the sight of the Lord. So he says, you, you have this reputation as one thing, but that's not the truth. That's sort of undercover hypocrisy, right? Not everybody knows that you have this phenomenal reputation on the outside, but deep down inside you're not that person everybody thinks you are. Like I said, this was a challenging thing for me, you know, because there are some things that people probably think that I'm really not. Now, I will hang with Skeet on this. I think most of the women that are children's pastors in town, I could probably take in a cage fight. But that's not really what this is talking about. The church at Laodicea in chapter 3 of Revelation, he says this, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So as he's talking to these churches, he's saying, you know, there's this one church that, that everybody outside thinks that you're, you know, that you're really something special, but really on the inside, when we look close at it, you're really not that person. You're not that church who everybody thinks you are. Then there's this other church where, where he's saying, you know, you're saying all these things that you are, um, you, that you are rich and you prospered and you need nothing, but that's not really the case. You're, you're hypocrites. You're not, you're not being honest about what you really are. So there's two ways we can go with this, this, at least two ways we can go with this whole hypocrisy thing. Is it, is it that you put forth this, this image on the outside, you put on this mask and everybody thinks you're someone that you're not and you're not willing to deal with who you really are or, or is it that you are going around telling everybody you're something that you know is not true and that other people know is not true? So why is hypocrisy so bad, though? It's, let, me, let me give you a quote from someone. Brennan Manning, who wrote um, one of the, my favorite books, The Ragamuffin Gospel, um, is a, a pretty deep theological thinker, and he said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We have to make sure, folks, that our, our actions, our lifestyle, and our words line up. And if you go back to the, the passage in Revelation, you know, he says, I'd rather you just be, be cold. Don't pretend that you're something that you're not, because that's more destructive than saying you're one thing and being something else. I think the reason that Satan attacks so many you know, people that, that have the opportunity to stand up and, and preach the word with, with these incredible, you know, sexual sins. It hasn't been too much lately, but for a while there was just, it seemed like a string every week, some other prominent pastor, minister, 
college professor, somebody was, you know, had fallen to some sexual sin. Why is that? Because they're saying one thing on Sunday morning, they're doing something completely different Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, and through the rest of the week. People find that unbelievable. And it actually drives them away from the Lord. So we've got to fix this. He's given us this list of do's. He's given us this list of don'ts. But then there's this little passage in the middle out of Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says this, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Get this picture. He's saying he's comparing us to grass. Anybody looked at your lawn this week? This is the, the perfect passage for the week because everybody's got that withering lawn thing going, right? Unless you planted lots of rye grass a couple months ago, right? And, and it's amazing to me how fast it turns, too. You know, you look out one day and you have a nice, beautiful green lawn out in front, and then the next day you look out and it's like, ooh, this is not, you know, is it all dead? Will this ever come back again? Kind of look out there. It happens quickly. And, he's, and I think this passage from Isaiah is in there to encourage us that this is a point of urgency. That this is not something that says, you know, someday when I grow up, Someday when I learn more, someday when I'm older, someday when God chooses something else for me, then I'm going to start living this way that God is prescribing here. Of, of being, you know, sincere and pure in heart and kind and loving and all those things. That'll happen someday, but it's just not for me right now. Then I think you're in one of those in that category there that, that Jesus talks about in Revelation, says, please don't tell anybody you're one of my followers then. Be hot or be cold, but don't be lukewarm in there. So don't tell them where you go to church and then act like, you know, you've never seen or heard anything from a church in your life. There's a certain urgency. And, and I would say that this is a great time of the year to hear this message too. This is the Christmas season. It's that season of the year when we were really good at looking back, you know, remembering Christmas's past. And, and we think about all the, the good things or the crazy things or the bad things or the creepy things or whatever it is that's been about Christmas in the past, depending on your upbringing. And then, then we look a, ahead, too, and we say, you know, this is what I'd love Christmas to be for my family. You know, I'd, I'd love for it to be the Norman Rockwell picture, you know, with that great big turkey on the table and everybody's smiling and you don't have to wear the creepy Christmas sweater if you don't want to and, and you know, all those different things. And, and you have this vision of what you want it to be. You have the memories of what it has been. And then there's the reality of where we live, which is somewhere in between all those things. And, and so as I think about this season where, where we are there, I think somebody wrote a book about Charles Dickens, something about Christmas Carol with the ghosts of Christmas past, present, future stuff, right? Yep. Um, as we think about all those things, this is a good time to examine our lives, too, and say, who have I been? Who do I want to be? So what am I going to do now that's going to take me from who I have been to who I want to be? 
Have I been Ben Weaver in the past who's envious and slanderous and, you know, cranky and all those things? And, and I want to be this sweet, loving, um, you know, Sam Muggins family guy over here. Today's the day to decide that, that you can be, with God's help, that person. It's not going to be perfect. You know, I said that about, about that character from the Andy Griffith show. He was a moonshiner, but he had a lot of good characters, characteristics about him, too. We're not going to be perfect. And nobody expects us truly, truly to be perfect. But I do think this is a time we need to examine our lives today and decide where am I and where should I be? Because time may be short. The grass withers and it fades and it falls and the flower falls and then it's done. And we don't know if this is going to be it, if we're going to live another 30 years, if we're going to have an opportunity with people, all those crazy things. I'll tell you a quick story about about a friend of mine. When I was a, a kid from kindergarten on up, I had a friend, his name was Tim, and Tim was... Um, one of those kids that was in the neighborhood, he lived about three blocks away, and, and we got together all the time, like almost every day. And Tim was in my kindergarten class, Tim was in my first grade class, we shared a desk in first grade, because you know, you didn't get one of your own, so you had to like share with somebody. And Tim and I were desk partners, which was a great thing. Tim and I were in Boy Scouts together, we were in Cub Scouts together. And one day in the summertime, I got way evangelistic about the third day of vacation Bible school when everybody was saying, you need to bring a friend with you to vacation Bible school. So I invited Tim, and he came with us to vacation Bible school. And as we were on our way back in the blue LTD sedan with the fake wood on the side, and we're laying in the back, and about eight people went, yeah, I know that car. Yeah, we had one of those too. And we're riding in the back, and I look over at Tim, and and just as they had told me to do, and as my mom had said to do beforehand, I said, Tim, what did you think of what we heard about the story about Jesus today? He said, I'd never heard that before. And I can't tell you what the Bible story was for the day. I said, really, so does your family go to church? He says, yeah, my dad's a pastor. <laughs> it's some Unitarian church, and, you know, I think pastor and cruise director were sort of on the same plane with, with Tim's dad the more I got to know him. And... And it struck me when he said, my dad's a pastor, that I, you know, that my work was done here. His dad's a pastor. He's got to know this stuff. Well, the fact was, Tim didn't know this stuff. And as we got to high school, it became very evident that Tim didn't know the Lord and, and, or anything even remotely about him. And I can remember several times in my life being challenged to say, I need to talk to Tim again. And I need to tell him what Jesus is really all about. And the reason I didn't was because I looked at my own self and I said, the first thing you're going to have to do is look him in the eye and say, you are a, I am a hypocrite. Because I'm going to tell you about something that's not the way I'm necessarily living. That I can tell you all this stuff because I've been taught at church, but... I'm telling you, you need to adjust your life, but I need to adjust mine some too. And you need to know Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus, but it may be hard to see sometimes. And so I was scared. The summer after our junior year in high school, 
Tim was off with a bunch of guys, and they went up to Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, to some of the best rock climbing spots in all of the country, cliff climbing stuff, and they're climbing up a cliff, and Tim fell. And the safety rope that he had and all the harness and all the gear uh, didn't work. And Tim fell about 120 feet and landed on his head. And it didn't kill him. Tim lived, and the, the Army helicopters came in, and they snatched him off the side of this cliff, and they took him, and for the rest of, and I don't know if Tim's alive or, or not today, but he had no chance to understand from that point forward. Now, Tim came back to school my senior year in a wheelchair and a completely different person than I'd seen previously before he went rock climbing. And I look at that and I say, I missed my opportunity. Tim needed to know this and now he couldn't understand it even if he, you know, if I tried. Even if I could muster up the guts to go before him and say, Tim, I need to tell you and I got to tell you to start with that I'm a hypocrite and I don't do all this stuff that the Bible says I should do. But that opportunity was lost. And that's why I say... This passage from Isaiah that talks about, you know, how frail the grass is and how it withers and goes away. I want to tell you that today is the day we need to, each one of us, examine our lives and see where we're at in this whole hypocrisy thing. How are you living today? And how do we avoid hypocrisy? The great thing is there's a, there's a couple more verses in here that talk about this. Verse 23 says that we are to be living and abiding in the Word of God. If you were here for most of this last year, we talked a lot about abiding from, from uh, John chapter 15. Abiding in the Word of God changes our lives. Abiding in the Word of God helps us fend off the attacks from Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus goes out to be tempted in the wilderness, three different times Satan tempts Jesus, and three different times Jesus responds with the Word of God. You want to be the man or woman of God that he has called you to be, the first thing you need to do is be spending some time in God's Word. And you know, I, I think about, I thought about this, this, this just a couple days ago, that how interesting this is. Peter's talking about this when nobody had access to the Word of God. Peter's talking about this when, when the only people that, that had the written Word of God were a couple scrolls rolled up inside a temple someplace that you may get to hear the rabbi read a piece of at any given time. Today, it's everywhere. You can actually pick up the book and read it including the stuff that Peter wrote. If you're like me, you wake up in the morning and there's four things waiting on your iPhone to help you get into the Word of God. Your verse of the day, your scripture reading of the day, your uh, podcast from your favorite pastor of the day. I have great men of the Bible shows up on mine and there's just some cool stories and stuff. There's all these things. It's so easy. We have the printed word. You can get it sent to you. You can listen to it. 
preached. You can listen to it if you don't want to read by getting the DV or the CD set and plug it into your car as you're driving along so somebody with a great accent like Phil Bells will read it to you. So you don't even have to read. It's everywhere. And it's something, and I don't say that to, to, to say that I do it enough. I don't. But it's, if we're going to combat these things that God says that we should not be doing, we have to have the Word of God be a regular part of our life. We have life groups where you can get together and discuss God's Word and, and what we're talking about here this morning. We have to understand that, that we need to live it too. You know, some, some days when I get up and I read the passages of Scripture that I start with every morning, it's encouraging. Those are the great days. Then always the great days somehow followed by some day of terrible conviction of what I did wrong the previous day. And how those people on the Internet know what verse to send me, I want to meet those guys someday and find out how they're watching me so they know the verse to send me to fix what I did the day before. Or convict me of that. And then there are some days that are preparation for other days. You know, it's, it's very interesting as we read Scripture, and, and sometimes some of the Scripture that I read, I say, this is a really cool verse. I have no idea what that means in my life right now. Well, just wait, because God's going to point that out to you as, as well. But the key is that we stay in God's Word. 1 John 2.14 says, I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God... Uh, and abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Get that. You, how do you overcome the evil one? You have the Word of God abiding in you. We're, we need to avoid hypocrisy so that we can actually reach out to people with a clear conscience, and so we can be heard, and the way that we do that is by having the Word of God abide in us. We need to know Jesus. We need to know the Word, and if we do, we can overcome the evil one. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, said, you know, living the Christian life, as it's described in the Bible, is simple. Love Jesus. Admit you're a sinner. Ask for God's forgiveness. Live the way the Bible tells you. It's also impossible. Because on our own, we can't live the way that this says we should live. Deep down, we're all hypocrites. We're all people who are envious and we can be slanderous and we can be jealous and we can be all those other things. But we do have the Holy Spirit who can enable us to be the men and women that we are not on our own. Deep down, we're sinful people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's us. And he gave us the Holy Spirit so we could live a life that is attractive to others. My personal favorite part of this passage is the last two verses. Let's look at those real quick. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says this. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There have been so many times in my life that I've tasted that the Lord is good. 
that the Lord has provided exactly what I need through a friend, through a scripture, through you know, all kinds of circumstances. The Lord is good. The Lord cares about the number of hairs on our heads, and that's easier for him with some of us than others. You know, but he's, he's good. He cares about every detail of our lives. And if we really look at our lives, we can say, you know what, I've tasted what God has, and it is good. And so now, from this point forward, I want to taste it again, be abiding in him, and be this man that God says that I should be. So here's my questions for you this morning. Do you long to know God better? Have you tasted and seen that God is good? Can you remember that? And are you going to walk out today different than how you came in? Billy Graham's somewhat of a hero of mine, and Billy Graham said one time that that the vast majority of all those who came to his crusades over the years, which is in the hundreds of thousands, but the vast, his opinion was the vast majority of, of the people that came to his crusades stood up at the end, and as every single crusade that Billy Graham ever did ended, they sang somewhere around a thousand verses of Just As I Am, while the people come forward, and he said, I am convinced that the vast majority of the people that ever came stood up to sing just as I am and left just as they were. And it's been my prayer this morning and for the last week and two weeks that that when we got together this morning, that, that something in God's Word this morning would stir in us a desire to leave this place today different than how we came. To not walk out just as I came, but to walk out trying to be just what God wants me to be. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that it is direct and clear and pierces us and challenges us and confronts us, and convicts us, but also can abide in us and change us and make us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, I pray this morning that as we opened your word that these would not just be nice Bible verses this morning that we shared together, but this would be a time where we can each examine our lives and say, how am I going to leave today? How have I been living What should I be doing different? Am I abiding enough? Am I counting on and asking and begging the Holy Spirit to do a work in my life? Lord, I just pray this morning that you would convict us of where we can change, that you would empower us to do that, Lord, and that we would, each one here, know the power of your word that can strengthen us and change us into the men and women of God that you want us to be. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.